From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, she makes it easy and helps keep more money in your wallet. This is For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Haq. Welcome to a brand new episode of For What It's Worth. I am your host, Rabina Ahmed Haq. We have an hour of jam-packed personal finance information for you. And this hour, we're really going to focus on housing. A lot of information out there about housing that I think really needs to be fleshed out, as they say in journalism, right? We really need to talk more about it. Uh, There is uh, a new uh, announcement from the federal government that they are going to be capping international student visas for the next two years. And they say This is to help with partly the housing crisis in Canada, but experts say, yeah, not so much. It's not going to make that big of an impact. And we have much bigger uh, problems that need much bigger solutions than simply just not letting uh, students into the country, students that bring in almost $22 billion of economic activity into this country. That's not the solution to stop our housing uh, crisis that we have right now. Anyone who's out there looking for a new rental, shopping for a home, knows that uh, prices have gone up uh, considerably in the last few years and that in some cases you have to really manage your expectations as to what you can afford on your salary because things have changed so dramatically. Um, As well, later in the program, we're going to be speaking to Craig Lord about the experience of first-time sellers. We talk so much about first-time homebuyers how they should save for their first home, how important it is to start saving early, how to make sure that you're buying a home that you're going to be in for the long term, right? So my, just to to reiterate what I always say, my, uh, my idea of what it means to have a, to buy a house that you can afford, those things have not changed in the last 15, 20 years that I've been covering covering personal finance. When it comes to buying a home, you should be able to put 20% down. You should be uh, fairly confident that you'll be in that home for 10 at the minimum five years. Um, And you should also um, make sure that no more than 30% of your gross income is going towards housing costs. Those are the three criteria that I think that you need to meet in order to really know that you can afford a home. But let's talk about the sellers for a second, because these are individuals who may be selling to either go into a bigger home or maybe downsize. And in the market that we're in right now, um, it is all up in the air. Will housing prices go up? Will interest rates remain the same? Will interest rates go down? All of these things are uh, really impacting what sellers can and can't do right now. A lot of people waiting until the summer thinking prices are going to go up if interest rates are cut. Forecasters saying that could happen as early as June of this year. And if that did happen absolutely prices would go up. But if you are selling to buy a home, a bigger home, you're also going to be buying in a more expensive market. So you've got to think about that too. We'll be uh, speaking to Craig Lord. He is the author of Homeschool. It is a newsletter available right now on globalnews.ca. And this month they're focusing on sellers, especially first-time sellers and things that they should think about before they put their home on the market. Even little things that you may not actually take into consideration, which for me, two things that that I I learned from selling my first home. One is it's really annoying to live in a staged home. It's really annoying. Like you're living in a home that looks like something that's on one of those designer television shows and you're trying to put the vase in the right area and the blanket perfectly across the corner of the bed. All of those things are not realistic when you have two young children and when sellers, you know, when buyers are coming over, you're trying to make it look like how the stager made it. And the second is the emotional part of it. 
there is definitely emotion tied to selling your home. You want to sell your home to a good person. You want to sell your home to someone who's going to take care of your home, even though it won't belong to you anymore. And it is unrealistic because it's a business transaction and you should take emotion out of these situations because you're not going to be living there. I can understand buyers being emotional because they want to live in that home, but you're not living there. So why are you so emotional about it? But it it happens. I know I felt a lot of emotion as to the person I was selling it to. Were they going to take care of it? Were they going to treat it in the way that it deserved to be treated? Uh, Some of the stories, those are two of the stories that we will be following, uh, that we will be talking about later in the program. But before I let you go, Parliament resumed uh, in Ottawa. They came back from their winter break, their six-week winter break. And the number one issue that they talked about in the House of Commons this week is affordability. And housing affordability, of course, being one. But there was also a poll that was done for Global News by Ipsos that found that affordability is number one on Canadians' mind, Canadian minds right now. And in that, uh, the affordability piece, affording, affording groceries is the number one issue. Second, inflation and interest rates. And then third is access to affordable housing. So these are the priorities that Canadians say that Parliament needs to focus on. These are the things that really are affecting Canadians' pocketbooks and uh, impeding their ability to save for their future and to be more financially well. So uh, we will be watching what uh, they do in the House of Commons and what government is proposing when it comes to making life a little bit more affordable for everyday. Canadians. We have the Senior Director of Canadian Economics from Desjardins up next to talk about the international student visa cap and what he says it's going to do to not just the economics of Canada, but also their social consequences it's going to have um, not letting these students into the country for the next two years. I'm Rubina Ahmed Huck. This is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Robina Ahmed Hawk. In an effort to cut back on private schools accepting international students for high tuition with low education, the federal government has announced a two-year cap on international student admissions. Now, experts warn that Canada's new cap on international student visas is going to raise social and economic problems and have a very small impact on some of the bigger issues that we are facing, such as the housing crisis. To talk about this and more, we are joined by Randall Bartlett. He is Senior Director of Canadian Economics at Desjardins. Hi, Randall. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I wanted to start by asking you, what is your reaction to this announcement? Because it seems like it came out of nowhere and it it does have a huge impact on post-secondary schools across the country. Well, this is something I think the federal government telegraphed back in the fall originally with uh, their uh, cabinet retreat at that time as they were coming back from the summer. And so we provided some uh, in-depth analysis on this, specifically for the province of Ontario uh, back in uh, September, October, uh, just to uh, get a sense of um, you know how big the impact could be on uh, post-secondary institutions in Ontario and ultimately what the uh, fiscal implications could be for the province as well. 
Now, one of the concerns, like I mentioned there in the intro, is that they're worried about private schools uh, taking in international students um, under the guise of higher education, but actually not providing that higher education. How big of a problem is that? I mean, we've all seen these these smaller schools across the country, um, but are, are they really making that big of an impact that they need to shut all admissions down in order to deal with it? Yeah, well, I think certainly, you know, there are there are these stories about, um, you know, schools that are popping up uh, all over the place and providing, um, you know, uh, some people would call them sham degrees and that sort of thing. And I, but I'm not convinced that they're necessarily uh, a, a big a big part of uh, the draw for a lot of international students. Uh, we're seeing that a lot of international students are going to sort of satellite campuses of uh, colleges and universities that um, that may uh, be be smaller by nature, maybe more remote by nature, and are setting up sat satellite campuses in, say, um, you know, the suburbs around like the GTA and other large cities. So I think uh, that's a, a big destination for a lot of these folks. And then even some of our larger, more reputable uh, post-secondary institutions, um, like, you know, University of Toronto, University of Ottawa, for example, uh, UBC, uh, have a very large share of their student body that are international students as well. And so it's, um, you know, it's... It, these these students are uh, are a source of uh, both um, you know talent uh, coming to these post secondary institutions, but also a big source of uh, revenues uh, for post secondary institutions as well. Do you have a, a, um, a an idea of the kind of revenue international students bring in, and 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 how much of the student body that they make up, uh, especially at bigger universities like the ones that you just mentioned? Well, when we look at um, say we look at uh, Ontario, for example, what we've seen is that um, foreign students have actually uh, their the tuition that they pay is actually made up an increasingly large share of the revenue take of those uh, of post secondary institutions, while the uh, the share of revenues coming from government transfers has uh, largely flatlined, especially in the province of Ontario, and so it's certainly um, you know begun to fill a pretty large void uh, in the uh, required funding for post-secondary institutions uh, over not just, uh, you know, in in the current administration, but even uh, under under prior governments as well. And so this is a bit of a longstanding problem. And so one that, uh, you know, universities and colleges have come to rely on uh, as, a, as a genuine source of funding. And we look at the tuition that uh, foreign students pay relative to domestic students. I mean, they could pay up to 10 times. Uh, the level of tuition that domestic students pay. And so really for a lot of uh, post-secondary institutions, they've become uh, a, a big part of the revenue base and uh, one that's uh, going to be very difficult for them to uh, to give up and still provide the same quality of education to uh, domestic students as well as those international students that do continue to come to their schools. Post-secondary education has become increasingly expensive for domestic students as well. Um, you know, there's a big push. I've got young kids to put money into RESP, constantly sort of trying to forecast what tuition fees are going to be when my kids get to that age. Um, could this raise tuition even further for, for, for students who are Canadians and Canadian residents um, and, ha and have had the privilege of paying that discounted fee compared to what international students pay? Well, I think it'll really depend on what the uh, provincial governments decide they want to do in this specific situation. When we look at Ontario, we've had a tuition freeze in place since about 2018. It's obviously that hasn't been the case in other provinces. Um, but, um, you know, that's something that, um, you know, the provincial governments will have to decide. Do they want to continue keeping domestic tuition where it is and then pay 
you know, a subsidy uh, to those post-secondary institutions out of other revenues or uh, require domestic students to start to pay more uh, in tuition. Um, you know, we've seen that, um, you know, generally uh, Canadian uh, post-secondary institutions do have, uh, you know, relatively uh, affordable levels of tuition when you compare them to post-secondary institutions uh, around the developed world. And so, um, you know, there's a big social, there's a big public and social benefit to having highly accessible post-secondary uh, education to all people across the uh, the income spectrum. And so it certainly provides an enormous public good to have that more accessible. But I think there's a question of, okay, is is it, you know, are, are we subsidizing to the point where um, it's actually, you know, eroding the integrity potentially or the, the, um, uh, the long-term financial viability of the post-secondary education system? We're speaking to Randall Bartlett. He is Senior Director of Canadian Economics at Desjardins. Uh, Randall, one of the issues that has come up is housing um, and that this could, uh, from the government's point of view, actually alleviate some stress on housing uh, because we've all heard stories in bigger cities like Vancouver and Toronto where um, it's almost impossible to rent an apartment for a reasonable amount of money. Um, is that the case? Could this cap on student international student visas um, help alleviate some of the housing stress that we're feeling in this country? We don't think it's going to have a material impact on uh, relieving housing stress in Canada, particularly in the near term. Um, you know, young uh, people who are coming here uh, as international students who have study permits uh, that have already been um, been issued uh, will be able to continue studying in Canada. This cap won't affect them. So it's really going to start to uh, bite uh, in the second half of this year. And so it likely won't have a material impact on on rent increases until that point. But even then, we think it's going to be relatively modest um, because we, we're, we'll still have a level of, uh, of uh, study permits that have been issued and that are open uh, in the country, even if uh, the level of new ones being issued is going to be cut uh, by by 35%. And so, um, you know, while we might see uh, rents increase by less over the next uh, couple of years than they would otherwise, uh, we don't think it's going to have a, a really uh, substantive, meaningful impact on rent inflation. And when it comes to market housing, uh, the impact is going to be even uh, that much less. Now, according to the Office of Immigration, uh, the minister's office, uh, Mark Miller's office, uh, international education brings in $22 billion into Canada's economy. And I know that you have been quoted as saying that that is a real concern, that that money will no longer be coming into Canada. Talk to me a little bit about the impact that has uh, of just of, of losing that, that amount of economic impact. Yeah, so we did some analysis looking at um, what the impact of reducing the number of non-permanent residents coming into the country uh, would be for the Canadian economy. And so that includes international students, but also temporary foreign workers and folks coming in under what's called the International Mobility Program. And what we found is that, you know, by reducing these numbers, ultimately, it's going to reduce uh, GDP growth, it's going to reduce uh, employment growth, um, uh, that sort of thing. It's going to weaken the slowdown that we're expecting in the first half of of, uh, of uh, 2024 and also also cap uh, the extent of the recovery as interest rates start to come down in the second half of the year. Um, that said, it will by taking some pressure off of the rental housing market, it mean, it'll mean uh, inflation, uh, rent inflation is going to be a little bit less than it might be otherwise. But 
because a lot of these non-permanent residents have been used to fill um, the sort of record high level of job vacancies that we had coming out of the pandemic, we may see that uh, the labor market uh, won't cool by as much as it would have otherwise, and therefore wages will uh, continue to increase at a higher pace than they would otherwise as well. And so there are going to be these offsets. So what we will, we're expecting to see weaker uh, GDP growth and economic activity overall, slightly weaker. Uh, you know, inflation, we think the impacts will broadly be a wash, get some relief on some parts, but a little bit higher inflation elsewhere. So we think it'll be uh, broadly a wash. So for the Bank of Canada, it'll just mean that, uh, you know, interest rates uh, will come down uh, at, a, at a gradual pace. We know that housing uh, is an issue in this country, uh, whether it be renting or even though prices have come down, even buying a home for some is just out of reach. What can we do? Uh, the federal government says they're going to create more affordable housing spaces, but that takes time. What can we do in the short term to alleviate some of the stress, especially for those who are newly in the market looking for a place to rent and just finding it impossible to find something reasonable? Well, it's extremely difficult in Canada. Um, when we look at uh, purpose-built rentals um, here, we're lagging well behind uh, as a share of the population compared to other OECD countries. Uh, about two-thirds of our purpose-built rental housing stock is uh, over 40 years old. And so, um, you know, we uh, have not been building a lot of, uh, a lot of rental units uh, in the last uh, few decades. And so I think in the Canadian context, there really needs to be a sea change in investment in purpose-built rentals. So I think that's one part of it. I think the federal government uh, uh, beginning to forego uh, the HST on purpose-built rentals will help to level the playing field with condos. So that'll make a bit of a difference. I think there needs to be a lot more investment in uh, purpose-built student accommodation. Uh, when you look at the number of uh, students in Canada that are housed in purpose-built student uh, accommodations, about 12% of the student population versus 30% in the US and the UK. And so there needs to be a lot more investment in in that sort of thing too. Uh, I think uh, you know I think working with the private sector to bring in uh, private investment in uh, student residences uh, to partner with public institutions would be a huge positive and a huge gain. And I think would take you know would put some relief on the on the rental market. But those those are longer term solutions. Uh, some things that have been proposed in the short term are things like um, you know possibly depending on what the needs of the municipality are. So leaving the decision up to local decision makers, uh, possibly uh, putting restraints on uh, short-term rentals um, in the uh, in various markets, uh, particularly in situations where uh, those short-term rentals would otherwise have been on the long-term rental market. And so uh, changing the, that dynamic or the math around that to, to some extent so that uh, you sort of uh, equate uh, the, the revenues that can be earned uh, by putting something on the long-term rental market uh, as opposed to the short-term rental market. So that could be in the form of tax relief or it could be, um, it could be uh, just tightening up uh, regulations uh, under certain conditions. Randall, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us your thoughts on this uh, cap on uh, student visas, international student visas, and the, the economic impact it could have, not just on housing, but our, our economy at large. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That's Randall Bartlett. He is Senior Director of Canadian Economics at Desjardins. When we come back, it's not the greatest time to be a home seller. Prices are lower than they were a year ago. And while inventory is also low, so is demand thanks to higher rates. Next, we talk to Global News' own Craig Lord and his latest newsletter, Homeschool. And this month, he's focused on sellers and what they can do to get the best price. I'm Rubina Ahmad Huck, and this is for what it's worth.
You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Hawk. It's not the greatest time to be a home seller. Prices are lower than they were a year ago. And while inventory is also low, so is demand thanks to higher rates. Taking all this into consideration, what should a seller know before they put their house on the market, especially if it's their first time? To talk about this and more, we are joined by Global News' own Craig Lord, and he is the author of Homeschool, a newsletter published on the globalnews.ca website. Hi, Craig. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rubina. Thank you for having me. So uh, sellers right now in Canada face a slew of different challenges. Uh, Number one being there's just not that much demand. Also the time of year. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about what a first time seller should think about before they put their home on the market. Yeah, that's a great question. The first one you really have to ask yourself before you list, before you reach out to your realtor, is now the right time to, to list? Um, now is is an interesting time. If you are trying to time the market, if you maybe are planning a move sometime in the next year, is the spring, which is typically the busiest uh, season for the housing market, the right time for you? Well, here's a few things to consider. First of all, we've been watching it for, for years now. The Bank of Canada's benchmark interest rate is going to have a lot to say about how busy the spring is and the kinds of prices that we see on homes this year. So Bank of Canada has not come out and said that they are going to be cutting interest rates, but there are a fair number of of forecasts out there expecting uh, maybe the spring, more likely mid-year in the summer, that we could see some easing in that benchmark interest rate. So the relationship you probably need to think about as a seller is when borrowing costs go down, prices tend to rise afterwards. Buyers can get back into the market. They can maybe uh, drive up those prices, afford a little bit more. So if you're selling your home, a lot of folks uh, who are watching the market are saying later in 2024, they're going to expect more price appreciation, maybe things a little bit more balanced in the spring as those who can afford to, to qualify for rates are getting back out there, but the sellers who maybe held off late last year because they were seeing slow activity, they weren't getting the bids they wanted in their home, maybe they took off the, took it off the market and are coming back in the spring. So more supply, more competition for you. Mm-hmm. So if you are trying and- to, to hit a certain price, um, keep in mind that that timing, if you can wait, it might be better. And that is one of the difficulties that sellers are facing right now, that they've got a bit of a rear view view where they're looking back to 2021 and saying, why can't I get that price, right? The same house on my street sold for 15, 20% more in some cases. And then they've, they're getting these messages, like we just mentioned, that interest rates could go down in some forecasters saying as early as June. And that, of course, is going to put upward pressure um, on the housing market. Um, but all of that aside, sort of, you know, that that's all the prediction stuff that you have to sort of just weigh your options. But there are practical things to think about when you're, when you're selling your home. And, and this is something that I really stressed out about was the staging process and having to live in a staged home. Talk to me a little bit about you know what sellers should expect when they've actually got their home on the market and it's in a state where it looks like one of those perfect you know homes that you see on television. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the tricky thing. If you've never sold a home before, once you get your your home staged and you get some photos taken and, and you post it on, on realtor.ca or wherever you're marketing your home, you really want to keep your home in that state as close as possible for for however it long it takes to to sell. Um, that also includes um, being available for showings, and that means getting out of your house. So if you have 
kids, brainstorming things that you can do on a regular basis to maybe out of the house for multiple hours a day, a few times a week. That can be tricky if you don't maybe have family in town that you can go and stay with. Um, as you are getting that that staging process underway, think about um, you know how you use your home. Uh, I mentioned kids earlier. How, how can you set up your kids' toys perhaps to very quickly be tidied up and put away uh, so that uh, prospective buyers are not stepping on Legos as they try to tour your home? Uh, not the best first impression you can possibly make uh, if you are trying to um, uh, attract a, a, a prospective buyer there. You know what? You know what used to stress me out so much, Craig, was that if uh, my realtor called and said, "Oh, we have someone that wants to see the home," it doesn't happen that often in the next hour. And my kids were all taking showers, you know, so the home kind of has this sort of steamy. You want the home to feel sort of crisp when somebody comes in to look at it, but all you know, all the towels are everywhere, and it's got this sort of steamy feel to it. And I'm thinking, how am I going to make this home feel uh, just sort of airy and bright without the feeling like someone just took a shower, uh, you know, in the bathroom? And these are things that you don't really think about as a seller. Um, one of the things uh, that you mentioned as well is the price. So like trying to figure out, you know, when to list the house, what price to list it at. Um, how, how do you even come to the conclusion if today is the day I want to list my home, how do you decide what is the best price uh, to choose? How do you come to that conclusion? Yeah, so there are a few factors that go into that that you want to keep in mind. The, the first and, and maybe the most obvious one is, is to look at the recent solds in your neighborhood. What did the house across the street go for? How long has it been since that sale? And what have, what have the market dynamics kind of told you since that time? Are prices on the upswing or should you try and maybe settle for uh, roughly what your, your neighbor got? Um, in, in terms of uh, what is currently on the market, you have to realize that you are probably competing. If you've got a two-bed uh, townhome, you're competing with a two-bed townhome down the road. So look at how long that home has been on the market and realize that if you put something up, and even if it's comparable, a home that's been on the market for 60 days might be due for a price drop soon. So be prepared that if your competition starts to lower prices, you won't have the sharpest price on the block anymore. And that might hurt your, your chances of, of getting uh, really interested buyers into your home. Now, the other thing you want to think about is the improvements you can make, the, the money you can invest in your home in order to, to maybe raise what you could get for that sale price. Um, experts who I spoke to, realtors say, you know, it depends on how long you've got to make that sale. You don't necessarily have to finish the basement, but some of the small things you can do to to really you know improve your your, your product in, in buyers' eyes, fresh coat of paint never goes wrong. Change the light bulbs, the small things that you can fix to, to really brighten your home. Uh, you'd be surprised at the psychological impact that that can have on prospective buyers because you're really just trying to put them in a state of mind that when they're touring your house, they're imagining it could be their own. Yeah, I think most of us know, you know, put away all the personal items, the photos and things like that. But um, painting a home, which is a pretty cheap and cheerful way, you know, some in some cases you can do it for, for less than a couple of hundred bucks. It can actually really raise uh, raise the price uh, that, that, that you, you would be offered for that same home. Um, you, you talked a little bit about when you're, when you're pricing your home that you, yes, you do comparison, but then also thinking about how long the home on the street has been up for sale. What is some of the, the, the issues that sellers face if their home is on the market for, say, 60 days or more um, because they listed too early or they listed too high. What are some of the, the concerns with that? 
Yeah, there's that that fear that your your home gets a reputation for for being a bit of a dead listing. If your home has been up for for sixty days, ninety days uh, through the winter, uh, folks who are just hitting the market now are going to assume, okay, well, you know, the photos look beautiful, maybe, but you know, what's under what's under the the, the what's behind the walls there? What's wrong with this home? You get a bit of a bad reputation uh, if you are uh, if you're seeing your your home not getting the the showings that uh, maybe it did in the first couple of weeks. Um, that I think is the time that uh, a realtor might suggest that you uh, pause the listing, uh, maybe make some changes. They, again, they don't have to be necessarily very expensive ones, but relisting with fresh photos and maybe a slightly sharper price uh, is a way to kind of reinvigorate your home, your listing on the market uh, without necessarily breaking the bank and and without you know garnering that reputation of oh there's there's definitely something going on here. Otherwise, you know why hasn't it sold? Yeah, that can be such a frustrating experience. You put your home on the market, you do all the right things, you stage it, you live in that stage home, and then you don't get any um, any any bites, so to speak. Um, there's a lot of sites out now out there now that allow you to do a deep dive into the history of sales in your area on the in the home that you're looking at. Um, has this hurt or helped sellers uh, when it comes to putting their home on the market? What, what's your impression? Is this has this been a, a good thing for the seller side? Um, it's, it's, I mean, don't expect to pull a fast one on, on buyers at, at any point, uh, an informed buyer is, is going to go through, uh, the history of a property, uh, realtors have always been able to pull that kind of transaction history. Um, it's, it's maybe a little bit easier for you to do your own research now as a buyer and, and really understand a home's history. Um, but if you are trying to, to cover up a, a glaring issue and you're not ready with an answer, if you know, the buyer's realtor comes to you and says, Hey, why was this done? Or what happened to, you know, that glaring pit in the backyard that we can see in the photos from a couple sales ago? Um, be prepared with those kinds of answers. Um, and, and you're you're probably going to, to come out with a better deal because of it. Um, you're you're not going to necessarily um, be able to pull a fast one on on buyers these days because those tools are so available um, to to buyers these days. So uh, that's that's my advice. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's a boring one, but uh, it's it's pretty pretty hard to to trick a buyer these days. I think yeah on on the on the housing market. We're speaking to Global News' Craig Lord. He is the author of Homeschool. And this month, uh, the newsletter will focus on the experience of sellers, especially first-time sellers. You can read all about it on globalnews.ca. Craig, before we let you go, um, any you know advice for first-time sellers? It can be a really emotional experience. I think people don't realize that it's not just the buyers that get emotional, falling in love with the home and they want to buy it. But the selling process can also be very emotional. Sometimes you don't want to sell to a certain person because something about them just didn't 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 uh, make you feel happy or you don't like the fact that all of a sudden this home is going to be owned by uh you know maybe not the people that you you imagined being living in that home it, it it's superficial and it doesn't have anything to do with business but it can impact your decision but anything about the emotional side of selling that people should be aware of yeah, I would say that's a that's a seller's preference kind of question. If you have, you know, built a, a family in a home, if you've lived there for for a decade or so and are moving on to the next stage of your life, maybe that's just a financial transaction for you. And I would recommend you tell your your realtor or whoever you're working with selling your home that you don't want to be involved with those kinds of decisions. Oftentimes buyers might submit a little bit of a letter to you to tell you uh, you know, who they are, who's buying your home. That might make you feel good. That might make you feel good about a, 
about a transaction, you know where your home is going to and that it's going to be the seed for potentially a new family. Um, but if you are, uh, you know, selling a home is a financial transaction. And if you just want to look at it that way, um, that's that's a perfectly legitimate way to go into the transaction and say, hey, I want to be as removed as this from this as I can, because maybe, you know, you are prone to making an emotional decision and and deciding, hey, I don't want top dollar. I I, I just want to, to know my home is going to, to good hands. And uh, if that's your preference, uh, I, I say go for it. But um, just be aware of, of your own uh, attachments to your home uh, as you are going into this process for the first time and and be aware of uh, of how emotional yeah it might be to to say goodbye to somewhere where you've uh, built quite a quite an attachment over the years and it, you also don't want your neighbors to have bad neighbors right you want you want someone to move in that your 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 former neighbors not going to say well I don't like these new people that have moved into this home that you should have picked somebody better someone more interesting I think that that also uh, for me anyways when I remember when I sold our first home, it really did, it really did mess with my sort of thinking about who we were going to sell the, our house to, because I wanted to make sure everybody was happy, including us with the, with the sale price. Craig, thanks so much for uh, joining us today and then talking us, uh, talk to us about this. I think this is something that we don't talk enough about the experience that sellers have in this, uh, in Canada. My pleasure, Rubina. If you are selling uh, anyone this year, uh, I wish everyone the best and, and the most pleasant of experiences on our uh, often crazy housing market. Yeah, that's Global News' own Craig Lord. He publishes the newsletter Homeschool this month. They're talking about sellers, the experience, especially of first-time sellers. And, you know, one of the things, because we did a bit of renovation in our home, I was very unnecessarily uh, interested in knowing if they were going to keep the renovations the way they were, which was none of my business right? They can go and they can paint the house purple. It doesn't matter. But I, I had this weird attachment. I wanted to make sure that the whole home stayed the way that I had left it to them as if I had any right to say that. So these are things that I think that we don't actually realize as sellers that we are going to go through this emotional roller coaster of who we are selling our precious home to. Uh, when we come back, last month or last week, rather, we talked about uh, downsizing. So still on this housing trend for this program. I actually had a chance to speak to one of our listeners who recently downsized her home and she gave me some really great tips that I want to share with you about what you should do if you're downsizing your home from that, what they call legacy home into your smaller home when you retire. I'm Rabina Ahmed Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, you're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Huck. Week we had a really fantastic guest on. She owns a uh, downsizing company in Calgary. Her name's Cindy Baudet, and uh, her company basically, once you get in touch with them for a fee, comes in and helps you basically move out of your big home into your smaller home, which is a huge task. And from that, I was able to actually get in touch with individuals who have done this recently. There's someone who's moved um, from my town. I live in Oakville, Ontario, and she's moved to a smaller uh, town about 30, 40 minutes away. And she got in touch with me to talk about her experience and some of the things that she has gone through, because she just did this in July. It wasn't. It's not something that she did years ago. She just did this in July. And some of the things that she said that she, that she found were a bit unexpected. Um, one she really wanted to stress that if you are downsizing to remember that you haven't probably sold a home in a quarter of a century. So she owned her home for 25 years and really did feel like she was a first-time seller, just like Craig is speaking about in his newsletter this week for homeschool about first-time sellers. It, it really is that same experience. The game has really changed the way that you 
contact people, the way that you organize people, the way the market works, everything is so different. So that was one uh, bit of advice was to sort of really face it like you are a first time seller. The second one was she didn't realize how enormous of a task it was to declutter and downsize your home. So, you know, we all know we have a lot of stuff, especially, you know, I live in what I would call is going to be my family home. I'm raising my kids in this home. And when I sell it, I think it is going to be a huge task. But what she was saying is that we don't actually understand how big of a task that is. We think it's going to take maybe a few weeks or, you know, maybe a month or so, but it actually takes years to start the process of downsizing your home. And so she said that because her and her husband had been talking about downsizing for close to a decade, so not that they wanted to downsize a decade ago, but they knew that at this point they wanted to move into a smaller home when their kids were adults, uh, that she already always had that in her mind. And her best advice was, you know, don't hang on to stuff that you know has no value, that is just hanging around your basement, hanging around your garage. And you know that it's never uh, really going to serve you any purpose. Just get rid of it because it's just going to pile on and on and on and be that much more of a task when it comes to uh, downsizing. Now, there's a really funny stand-up bit that uh, Jerry Seinfeld does about when uh, you know when something has completely lost its value when it goes to the garage. So once you tell somebody, you, you know, I tell my husband, put that in the garage, you can almost assume that it just has no value anymore. Like it's never going to come back from the garage. And I thought that was really a bang on when it comes to the way that items, you know, the life cycle of items, they go from like your bedroom closet, maybe they go into a bag that you're going to take to donation that you don't donate it. So you put it in the garage. It's never coming back into your house. So, you know, if you, if you sort of keep that mentality, that minimalist mentality, which I try my best to do, but even, you know, when I look around my house today, I still see a lot of stuff that I know I don't need. Um, so to keep continue to downsize your items. And the second thing is that she didn't realize that uh, closing your home or moving into the home that you're buying, um, moving on closing day is a bad idea because she thought, okay, the proximity to where I'm moving is pretty close. I'm just going to do it all in one day. So even though her home was closing the next day, the home she was moving into wasn't close, was closing on that day. She should, she said we should have booked it a day or two earlier because what happened was the sellers rather a day or two after it closed. So get the keys have the home, then move in. So that should be the process. Get the keys, move, have the home, then move in. She did it the opposite way. She moved, then went to get the keys. Sellers weren't ready to leave, had to wait, actually did the move the next day. And she said that was one of her biggest expenses because it's expensive to have uh, you know, professional movers sit around and wait for the move to actually happen. So these are just little things that I think she mentioned that I hadn't even thought about. I mean, these are really things that I hadn't really uh, considered when it comes to downsizing. Um, but one thing I do have to say is that she really inspired me. Um, you know, these are things that I think about as well. I don't want to be in a position where I'm cleaning home rooms I don't need to clean or I'm taking care of a home that's too much home for me and my husband. Definitely, uh, you know, when I get closer to retirement that I'm going to think about downsizing. I also think that, you know, and I might might get a bit of might get a bit of flack for this. I think it's kind of selfish for older couples to live in these big detached homes when we have a housing crisis in this country. Like you could easily live in a smaller place and that home could then be given to a family that needs it, that's desperately trying to find a home. So I think there's a little bit of, you know, social there's there's a social aspect to it too that we don't think about. You know, there's some families in my neighborhood um, some of them are living in a big house by themselves. Some of them, it's just two couples, like just a couple, sorry, just two people. And I think to myself, wouldn't it make sense if you sold this home and let a family move in? Because it really would be something that I think that they would appreciate. So from that perspective as well, I think it's just selfish 
to be honest, to live in a big, huge home when there is a housing crisis in this country, when you could easily uh, live in a smaller home and probably a more luxurious home, right? Because you would have the same amount of money, but you'd be living in a smaller place. So you could probably have a more luxurious lifestyle, go on better holidays, buy better things if that's what you desire. So think of it that way as well too. Think of it selfishly. You can get more you can get more out of life if you, if you downsize. I think definitely that is going to be the way that I go. Uh, I want to thank you so much for listening today. I hope you got something out of it. It was very housing heavy, but I think that it's really important to keep our eye on the housing market. It's going to be the big story of 2024. Uh, not just when it comes to a renewal of mortgages, but housing prices, interest rates is all going to be focused on housing. And I think more so than even the last couple of years, because we are in such a vulnerable position right now with the way interest rates have gone and we don't know what's happening. A lot of people are on the fence of when and how and how much to sell. And this is the year I think that a lot of those uh, decisions are going to really make the news. So maybe some people selling when they don't want to, maybe some people having to move because they can't afford their mortgage. A lot of that I think is going to be a part of um, our stories that we'll be telling in 2024. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back here same time, same place. I'm Rubina Ahmed Huck. This is For What It's Worth.